Hello and welcome back to the Tez News Podcast. I'm your host, Tez Podcast producer Joshua Morris. A little bit later in the episode, I'll be talking to senior editor Grania Hallahan about how the International Baccalaureate are looking to review how their courses impact children's well-being to see if any adaptations are needed. And we go back to take another look at a story we looked at in previous weeks on the DfE's new intervention process for schools that have faced two consecutive, less than good, judgments. But first, to a story that I've been keeping an eye on, because last week on the podcast, Callum Mason was here talking about the lack of clarity on the government's teacher pay plans, and the fear that an unplanned rise in pay could have a terrible impact on schools. It seems those fears were founded because in the government's latest plans released this week, experienced teachers are set to get a bigger pay rise than originally planned for. I'm joined by Tez reporter Matilda Martin to go over this one. Matilda, welcome back. Now, I'll let everyone in on a bit of a secret here behind the workings of the podcast. One of the ways that I like to stay up to date on these stories is Twitter. And you put together a fantastic Twitter thread on this very topic that we're going to talk about today. That's where uh, a lot of my understanding of this story actually comes from. Could you, could you start then by setting the scene for us a little bit? Uh, last week, uh, we heard from Askell's Jeff Barton describing the landscape as a perfect storm of financial pressures. What then has happened in the last week? Where are we at with teacher pay? Mm, yeah, so yeah, I think this the thread that you mentioned that I did, it got quite quite a lot of traction just because I think it, you know, this is such a big issue for schools and something that everyone cares about. I think even outside the education sector as well. So we had a lot of public public sector announcements um this week. But yeah, so what we had was we were expecting for experienced teachers a three percent pay rise um this this coming September. Um, and that's what they they kind of asked the STRB, the independent pay body for. Um, but yeah, so they came back uh this week and said that instead of the three percent that was expected, it would be a five percent pay rise for experienced teachers from the September. Um the reason why we've got the new um education secretary, James Cleverly, he said there have been kind of, you know, unprecedented changes in the economic uh, picture since since they'd um, submitted their evidence in March and the STRB had um, advised for the 5% in that case and they'd accepted it. Um, but some of the problems we have now are schools are left in a little bit of a, a limbo over, over budgeting fears for this September. Mm, yeah, so current plans are kind of causing friction here on, on two fronts, really. Firstly, that the pay rise actually isn't enough to keep up with the rising cost of living. And then secondly, on the other side of the coin, because the increase is actually more than expected, it means that schools can't meet that cost without any additional funding. What then is the ideal situation? Is it then a funded increase in line with inflation? Yeah, so that's what a lot of the unions are asking for. They're asking for around a 12% pay rise. Um, I think it's not just about inflation, though. I think well, is it about inflation, but not just inflation this year? So over the last kind of decade, they said that there's been kind of um, uh, a pay cut in real terms due to due to prices going up and uh, wages not keeping up with this. Um, I think in an ideal world, this this five percent pay rise, although it's not exactly what people were wanting or need, would have been fully funded by the by the mm. department for education um at the moment schools have 
basically already set their budgets, expecting it 3%. Um, it's not that they can't change them, it's just that finding the funds for that sort of extra cash um, is going to be a bit of a struggle, especially as it's not fully funded. Um, I think, so Lior Credits, uh, the CEO of CST, she said that, you know, the settlement wasn't affordable for schools within their existing resources. So it is something that's causing quite a lot of stress, I'd say, in, in the sector. You touched a bit earlier on, on the DfE and James Cleverly. Of course, he's new to the role. What did he have to say about the reasoning behind these plans? Are they actually just, is this increased part of a plan to tackle retention, I suppose, at that end of the pipeline with the more experienced teachers? Yeah, I think, I think so. I think up until now, the, well, still, the, the uh, focus has very much been on starting salaries, which have gone up um, by, I think it's 8.9% uh, for September. Mm. It's all part of the plan to get to the £30,000 starting salary teachers, which is meant to be boosting recruitment, but you're right, retention is also an issue. Um, I think the 5% is probably about that, but it's also just about, you know, responding to the STRB's uh, proposals in terms of inflation at the moment. Um, I think, yeah, the fear is that if being in the teaching profession becomes unviable for, for quite a few people, um, they might leave. And I think also it's about making sure that the pay scale isn't flat. You know, you, you go into a profession seeing that rise, that as you rise up the ranks, your pay will increase. Um, and I think quite a lot of the criticisms at the moment are coming from that flattening pay scale. You, you've mentioned there are a few of these reactions. What has the sector had to say about these pay rises? I think in your Twitter thread, you did mention that even some of the usually uh, cautious commentators were up in arms about this. Yeah, so... Leora Credis was one of those. She was, she's very much kind of spoken out um, about, about those issues. Um, I think also just a lot of school leaders and Matt's and everyone have kind of come out and, and spoken out against this. Um, also the unions as well. I think, you know, although they haven't been kind of cautious up until this point, this has definitely brought all the unions out. Um, kind of they've issued a joint statement this morning, whereas before it was the NEU and Nazareth who had kind of spoken about balloting for industrial action um, if that pay rise didn't meet inflation rises. Yep. Um, so, yeah, we've got that joint statement this morning from the unions. Um, and it's kind of hard to tell where the next few months will go, especially as we mm. get towards the new term. Where are we actually going to, to go from here? Are we in a position where, where schools are just going to have to find a way to deal with this, this impact on their budget somehow? Yeah, I think, you know, some, I know that uh, Callum Mason's done a story about, um, you know, the fact that there might be deficits. I think a few school leaders that I've spoken to already are talking about things that they might have to cut in order to meet these rises. Um, I think nothing's really set in stone yet. Nothing's been decided just because obviously it's only been a few days. But there are concerns, I think, about where the rest of the school might have to suffer in order to, to meet those expectations. Mm, yeah, we've, we've got plenty of coverage. As I've said, this is probably the main story on our website all of this week. 
And of course, as I mentioned earlier, your Twitter thread is a great source. If you're out there looking to uh, to get up to date on this, make sure you go and check that out and the stories on our website, tes.com forward slash magazine. Matilda, thank you for joining me again today. So for our analysis coverage this week, Gronya Hallahan is back again with me. Gronya, welcome back. Hello, thank you for having me. Teacher pay has, of course, been the big story on our site this week, so much so that we would be remiss not to mention your coverage of this story as well. You've also got a piece on pay, which was a complete breakdown of the teacher pay increases. Now, one of the key facts here is that they've only actually announced the next year of teacher pay, right? That's right. So in the original proposals, we were expecting to have a two-year plan, but because of uh, the changes in the economy and because of the crisis of um, the cost of living, They've decided just to commit to one year and they're leaving the prediction that what they're planning to do for next year to one side for now. And that's subject to further review. So we're not we don't know for sure people are going to get paid for 2023, 2024. And they've just committed to the first year. And we go into detail about, you know, what those what those salary increases will be. And we look at the the London ones and we've got we have got the detail on the on the piece as well about what the plans are. For the next year but yep do go and check it out and have a look at what the salary increases will mean for you yeah and i'm sure that's caused a bit more of a headache here for schools as they were already kind of up in arms about the lack of clarity and now you've gone from that two-year plan down to that one-year plan great article make sure to go check that one out now we have a couple of other articles to talk about today let's start by taking a look at well-being Specifically, how the International Baccalaureate are looking to review how their courses impact children's well-being to see if any adaptations are needed. Now, uh, this article comes from Oli Pekka-Heinonen, Director General of the IB, and it's not the first time actually that we've heard Pekka-Heinonen talk about plans to adapt the IB to keep the course modernised. Indeed, the topic of digital assessment was at the forefront of his interview with Tez Senior Editor Dan Worth a few months ago. So, Gronje, what are the challenges that he's seen uh, IB students face today that have led him to review the impact of the course on their well-being? So, you know, first of all, let's I start with the fact that it's so interesting that they're looking at the impact of their course on well-being of their students. And it sometimes, when you read things like this, it just makes you realise how far apart the GCSE is as a qualification compared to the IB. They're like two completely different worlds, aren't they? Could you imagine doing this with GCSE? Mm. <laughs> I think it's a great. It's a great read because, you know, you're, it's thinking about the qualification in a completely different way. And it kind of makes sense when you think about how different the IB is to the GCSE in that, you know, for the IB qualification, you've got to do so much more than just pass your exams. There is an expectation that you, you know, give back to your local community and you're, it's all about being like a global citizen. Really, really different. So, yes, that's put that to one side. The, the reasons why they want to look at um, the, the well-being and, and, and the impact that the IB has upon students, they're talking about things that have happened in the world, about the impact of um, coronavirus, and uh, that's you know, the reasons why they want to look at what their, what their course is doing to the well-being of the students who are taking it. So uh, what kind of changes then could actually be implemented? How does... How does a course or a scheme of work adapt to support well-being? Although it doesn't actually give any examples yet of what they might change, I guess they're waiting to see what the results are of their, their survey first. It's sort of hit the, the piece hints at sort of things that might, might go on. So that they talk about the, the importance of coursework and um, 
internally marked work for their assessments and teamwork and creativity and encouraging curiosity in the schools and frameworks. So perhaps they're going to look at how that's designed to maximise the impact of wellbeing on their students. Then think about how the course might be redesigned to make the most of those features. Yeah, I suppose it's about taking the uh, the pressure away from students. And that kind of lines up with what he's talked to us about before when it comes to digital assessment, that perhaps that could alleviate some of the pressure on his students. I'm always uh, kind of fascinated by the IB. And I think it's uh, it's partly for this reason, you know, it, it does feel innovative and in not just the the course content, but in the way that they feel out and adapt to the global landscape as well. Yes, absolutely. I think it really is quite a different beast to the to the GCSE, and um, it's an it'd be interesting to see how it changes in the next few years. Yeah, yeah. Okay, next up then. A few weeks ago, I was talking to John Roberts on the podcast about plans to academize coasting schools. That is, schools that received two consecutive less than good judgments from Ofsted. This comes in line, of course, with the government's plan to have all schools and academy trusts by 2030. Now, when I was talking to John at the time, this had been met with a fair bit of pushback, not in the least part from Ofsted themselves, with the argument that many of these schools would be on the path to improvement and that intervention could be disruptive. However, Matt CEO Seamus Murphy wrote for TES this week, arguing that the sector should actually embrace these proposed changes. Granted, they're applied with flexibility and a certain level of understanding on a case-by-case basis. So, Gronya, is the foundation here of Seamus's argument that those schools that do get mul- multiple consecutive requires improvement judgments, are schools really in need of that intervention? And otherwise, we'd be we'd be failing the children in those schools. Yes, I mean, it's, it's, it felt quite controversial, didn't it? Like putting it up, you can sort of, you read it almost like with your hackles raised, like, what, this is a good thing? Could it surely be? Like, this is railing against everything I believe in. This is surely not good. But Shavis makes a really good argument for it and saying that, you know, that with flexibility and looking at things case by case, it is important to address when a school gets RI twice in a row something is going wrong and those children are being failed and it's not enough just to say, oh, you know, they're on the road for improvement. It needs, he says what the intervention will add is a clear timetable, sense of structure, purpose, momentum to the process of school improvement. And that is something that we should embrace, we should welcome and work with rather than fighting against it and actually saying, you know, this, this could be the best way to deal with schools that are continually performing in a way that, you know, offset judged to be not up to standard. Yeah, yeah, you're right. We have heard a lot of arguments against this process, but actually, what what benefits could joining a map provide? Well, I think it's the it's the idea that the intervention should should match the school. So it could be that they're already in a mat, but that mat is not serving the school well, and they need to be rebrokered and put into a new mat. And having a you know a new set of leadership, new and often more money and or access to better sources of money that could address the problems that the school need. Also, the argument is that if a school has received two RI judgments in a row, because of the distance and the length of time that happens between those judgments, it means that whole cohorts of children have gone through the school while it's only ever been RI. If we're saying, like, actually, you know, that is a sign that things are just unacceptable, we need to stop that, it means that, you know, you're trying to turn things around for the children while they're still at the school. And that's, that's really, when you think of it in that kind of level, think of it from the child's perspective, it 
does, you know, it, I, I find it quite a convincing argument. That, that makes sense to me. Yeah, he also mentioned that the, uh, the kind of areas that these schools are in tend to be those of educational disadvantage. And indeed, the other week, John, John mentioned this to me, that the DfE has said that the government's 55 designated education investment areas, where education standards are currently among the weakest, have been prioritised as the focus of the new intervention powers. Are these uh, schools going to be schools then in these areas that would have a higher chance of stagnating and continuing to receive those RI judgments? Yeah, and actually this is where we see the other side of it, isn't it? So if the school's in an area where there's deprivation, there's unemployment, there's you know really challenging circumstances that the schools are working with and communities where education perhaps just isn't a priority or for many other reasons it isn't able to be prioritised at that time, then what is a school really going to be able to do? Like a school can only do so much and this is why it's really important that you know we think about the whole context. The school can't shoulder all of the blame here and that, you know, they can only do so much. You work with the communities that you're working with and you can try and do the best you can by that community. But there's, you know, the powers of the school are still limited. And so, yes, even with intervention and with mats and and lots of help, I think some schools will still struggle to move past RI because there's only so much that they can do. Seamus does, he does set this argument out as kind of a best case scenario, looking at it through some, some slightly rose-tinted glasses. But I am curious to see this in practice, with the hope, of course, that we will see improved outcomes for those students. Uh, well, that's about all we have time for this week. Gronya, it's been a pleasure, as always. Thank you for joining me again today. Thanks so much for having me. No problem at all. And, of course, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do make sure to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice recommend to a colleague, etc, etc. And make sure to check out the stories we covered today on our website, tes.com forward slash magazine. Thanks again for listening. We hope to have you back with us again next week for more of the Tes News podcast.